Hello, friends and colleagues, and welcome to episode 47 of Dermosphere, the podcast by dermatologists, for dermatologists, and for the dermatologically curious. I am one of your hosts. My name is Luke Johnson. I'm a pediatric dermatologist and a general dermatologist with the University of Utah. And my co-host, of course, is... This is Michelle Tarbox. I'm an associate professor of dermatology and dermatopathology in fortunately, finally, again, beautiful, sunny Lubbock, Texas at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center. Yeah, you guys got hammered with snow for a little bit there. We are not accustomed nor equipped, but it's getting better. I sent a hope you're okay text to you and some of my other former colleagues down there and got a reply back that was a meme of Ned Stark saying winter is coming. All of it. All at once. This weekend. Which I thought was pretty good. That's pretty, pretty correct. Yeah. Yep. So yeah. every two I was, weeks... I was actually thinking about Every two weeks, we come at your ears with some of the discussions of the latest research in the world of clinical dermatology. We're trying to make sure that you guys can stay up to date on what's going on to help you out in clinic without necessarily having to flip through a bunch of journal articles. And we are fortunate that today, to help us with that mission, we have a guest, Dr. Peter Leo. Peter, thanks so much for being here. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, thank you so much for having me. It is a great honor. I am a, a very faithful listener, so it's really fun to be on with you guys. And you might not Yay, know how I'm much so of a fan we are of you, Dr. Leo. I remember I saw you talk at the AAD. I think I was a first year resident and thought you just did a great job talking about, I think, like alternative eczema therapies um, and pediatric patients. And I came up and talked to you a little bit afterward. I'm sure you don't remember, but you made an impression on me. Awesome. I'm so glad. Do you want to just start and by you introducing yourself? so much to the literature. I'm grateful. Sure, sure. Well, thank you. So my name is Peter Leo. I'm a clinical assistant professor of dermatology and pediatrics at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine in not so sunny Chicago. <laughs> uh, we've been pummeled by cold and snow, but we love it. We Chicagoans are tough. Um, <laughs> and we feel we feel bad, though, for the poor Texans who are even tougher in many ways, but not prepared. You know, we're used to this every year. So for us, it sort of rolls off our back, but I feel bad for you guys. It's been pretty miserable. Um, and I started the Chicago Integrative Eczema Center several years ago now, going on almost six years ago now. And I'm focused on really integrative approaches for atopic dermatitis and itch and really all skin diseases. So it's been kind of an adventure. That's amazing. We could talk to you about all kinds of things, but just to keep our podcast under five hours, I would like to focus specifically on one article that you published recently that was published in the Journal of Dermatological Treatment called Topical Corticosteroid Withdrawal, quote, Steroid Addiction, an Update of a Systematic Review. You know, this is such, thank you again also for even considering talking about it because this is such a controversial topic. And sometimes when I speak on this, I'll get some pretty vehement pushback. And I almost feel like people are kind of protective of this area because it touches a nerve, so to speak. I think there's some confusion here. So I worked with a wonderful medical student, John Wei Huang, to put together sort of an update on a review that was published uh, in 2014 originally, or I think it actually came out in 2015. So we felt like there was some more things to add. And I still unfortunately feel like sort of the, the bullet take home point really is that we still don't really know much about this. I still agree it's controversial. You know, I, I understand that we don't have a great diagnostic approach to this. We don't really have any gold standard testing. And I also think that sometimes it is truly misapplied or misappropriated. But that being said, I also feel it's really important 
important to get the word out that I think it's a real thing. And I think we have to be at least be paying attention to it. Even if we don't feel like we're seeing it much, it's such an important thing to be able to identify, talk to our patients about. And sometimes just by saying, hey, listen, I'm always keeping an eye on you. I'm always careful about overusing topical steroids. You see the patient visibly relaxed. You're like, okay, thank you. You know, you're at least thinking about it. You're talking about it. And I think I'm not trying to vilify steroids. Obviously they're one of our main, main tools in our toolbox, period, no matter what. But it's so important, I think, just to be aware of this because the community who talks about this is pretty passionate and maybe almost in the beginning there were too much. And I think that turned off a lot of more conventional physicians. People thought, oh my gosh, these guys are saying we're, we're, we're causing every problem in their life. Yeah, I actually did a little deep dive into the internet and started to look at some of the support organizations and some of the advocacy and the good information. And I actually um, ran across a very nice video on YouTube that you are actually featured in called Ask, Ask the Experts. And I thought you did a very nice job of compassionately describing the problem that some patients are facing with this without sensationalizing it or making it seem like you know any area was being vilified. I think we do need to listen to the potential pathology behind this and and really consider it in some people. So the this review, which you say is an, an update from a, another review that was published in 2014 with Tamar Hajar, who was a resident at OHSU when I was a fellow there. Um, so shout out to the peeps at OHSU as well. Basically state that steroid addiction is people using topical steroids too much so that when they stop, they get kind of this erythematous burning edematous reaction. Is that a fair way to describe it? I think that's perfect. Absolutely. And what both reviews discovered was that it's a lot more common in women. It tends to occur primarily on the face. And people have usually been inappropriately using topical steroids, usually mid to high potency for an extended period of time. So sort of your standard patient, if you will, would be like a woman in her 50s who was using it for hormonal acne or something and putting triamcinolone 0.1% ointment on her face every day for the past six months. And then when she tries to stop for some reason, she gets red and swollen and burning and itchy. Is that fair? I think that's very much the classical presentation. You know, we know there are kind of our more rosacea form subtypes as well that you can see, but the way you just described it is basically 90% of what I'm seeing in my clinic. How many patients with this do you see? I now have a pretty big cohort in part because I think the word of mouth has led people to kind of funnel towards me. And with the pandemic, we've kind of opened up the state borders. So now I have all these patients doing out-of-state telehealth with me, which is, you know, I'm totally flattered and honored to be able to help and try to help folks and take care of them. But it's also kind of overwhelming because these people are really, really, really severe. A lot of times, some of the patients, you know, haven't left their house in two years. One of the things that I, I kind of push back on is I have people say, oh, you know, I saw, you know, some other practitioner who said, you just have to wait it out. And I said, okay, well, how long have you been waiting? And they're like, I'm on year seven. I'm almost there. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like, I don't think seven years is an appropriate time for anything to wait it out. Like, how do you know this is not permanent? And there's actually been some discussion now, maybe just the nomenclature is, is really not helpful. Maybe another way to put it would be something like a post-steroidal syndrome. This idea that I think some of the patients really kind of seem broken and they may have some under, you know, underlying immunopathy that we just don't understand yet. And steroids maybe triggered it or played some kind of a role in this whole thing. But I don't think it's a withdrawal in any true sense after, I mean, golly, after three or four months. I, I don't understand. Like it doesn't make physiologic sense anymore, but I really do have patients who are suffering. And, you know, to my eye, and I do feel 
pretty good about eczema. I see so much and I really have focused on this disease for the past decade. They really do look a bit different and I can't always find the perfect diagnostic criteria to help us separate them. But I do feel like there often is that slightly different appearance, morphology and and the history that helps me say, gosh, you know, I'm, I'm at least concerned about it in you. And then I really try to ch- tailor and change my approach to them to really avoid steroids. So according to the reviews where it's mostly people using it on the face kind of inappropriately, there are reports of people using it for, you know, things like eczema, basically using it pretty appropriately, who nevertheless get the syndrome. So you're discussing potential ways we could try to identify people at risk for it. Exactly. And I've even had some families where, you know, in kids, the initial thought was that's super duper rare in kids. We really don't see this. But now I do have a cohort of children too. And some of them have really used a tiny amount. And the problem here is that we can kind of hit right up against that wall of corticosteroid phobia, where I'm thinking, gosh, you know, I, I really think they just have mild to moderate atopic dermatitis. And yes, when you use steroids, it gets better. And when you stop, it flares back up again. So I mean, you're kind of just describing the natural course of this illness. You know, we don't, steroids don't cure the disease. So there is this kind of this kind of betwixt in between area where I do think it's hazy and those liminal cases are tough. But I think my new default is to say, okay, I respect it. And fortunately, I'm lucky. We're now in a time when we actually have some non-steroidal tools. You know, I think even just as recently as four or five years ago, we were kind of limited. You didn't have a whole lot in your toolbox outside of corticosteroids, but now we're getting more and more things. So I'll say, let's try a different approach. Let's put those away for now. And again, sometimes it's really just to connect with the patient to get them better. Because the biggest issue for me is I'm watching, it's, it's even worse when it's a kid, but even an adult just suffering and waiting it out. And they're still pretty miserable. And we know how much misery atopic dermatitis causes, even if it's not TSW. Yeah, and there does seem to be a little bit amongst the sort of uh, in the in the zeitgeist um, this sort of phobia of ever going back to a traditional physician for treatment. So they have this sort of I need to soldier through this, and eventually my body will heal itself thing. And you know, I think some of the patients who've self-diagnosed with this condition actually legitimately have something else, like an immune deficiency or something that needs appropriate therapy. Because I I too like read some stories about people. It's my fifth year. It's my sixth year, and I'm like. There's no way the half-life of the medication has been far exceeded, and a lot of the pathophysiologic changes will have been um, at least partially recovered from, even from significant steroid atrophy. One of the things I noticed clinically in some of the cases I was more convinced about is these unusual sharp lines of demarcation, where the erythema and edema just stops at unusual cutoff points that don't physiologically make a whole lot of sense. And I wonder if that might be a clue to the pathophysiology. I think that's such a great observation. You know, in the community, they often call it this red sleeve sign or the sleeve sign. And it is kind of weird. Like you get this cutoff right at the wrist, but the entire arm is quite edematous too, more edema than we normally see in atopic derm by itself. And I typically think of eczematous lesions as being a little bit ill-defined. You know, there'll be a hot spot, but then it sort of smoothly fades out. Whereas here, as you say, it's often very crisp and it almost looks like contact dermatitis sometimes too. And I think that's been another confusion. Could some of these people actually have allergic contact dermatitis to a corticosteroid itself or potentially something in the vehicle? And I think the answer is probably some of them do, but I've done a fair amount of patch testing and it's been negative or reassuring in many of the cases. So I think there really is something beyond that, but sometimes I'll get dismissed at a conference because, like, oh, it's just steroid allergy. You're missing it, you know? And it's like, well, maybe, but I've actually, you know, tried to up my game and really checked in a number of patients. So I can guarantee you that it's not that all the time, uh, even if some of those cases may be caused by that. So what's your approach um, to try to get people better if they have this? 
So I have a few things I do if they're really severe, which unfortunately is kind of the the main group that I'm seeing. And I, I really do feel for these people. A lot of them are out of school or work and some of them are bedridden. It's kind of terrible. So the first thing I'll talk about is using cyclosporin, uh, our conventional immunosuppressant. I, I say, you know, I literally say it is designed as a steroid sparing agent. It has been used for many decades. It is not the safest thing. You know, it has a bunch of side effects, but we really do think it could give you some relief. And unlike corticosteroids, it often does have a remittive potential. I really do find that if we get people better and we can wean them off of it, sometimes even going to weekend dosing, many patients do well. One of the early kind of prominent figures in the TSW movement also kind of endorses cyclosporin as well. So that makes it, I think, an easier sell, normally a difficult medicine to sell to patients, but a little easier because they've heard of it. So that's something I talk about. Phototherapy is another thing that I find. Now, if they're really bad, I feel like it's just too too difficult to get them up to speed over a few months, but sometimes I can even wean from cyclosporin to phototherapy. And of course, we wrote a paper a couple of years ago showing that dupilumab actually did give these patients some relief too. So I'll often pitch that. And again, I explain, you know, it's not a steroid. It's not an immunosuppressant. It's a different approach on the condition. And at least in our small cohort, I think it was six or seven patients, they really did see some significant improvements. So kind of some combination of those things. And then topically, I like to use the calcineurin inhibitors like tacrolimus or pimecrolimus. Some of the patients are kind of nervous about them. And sometimes in the community, they've sort of, again, conflated them with steroids. So they don't want to use those. Crisoboral is another option, although it's not really appropriate for those more moderate and severe patients and often stings and burns. It also contains propylene glycol. So it's sort of non, non-perfect, but sometimes we'll do some more natural approaches. I'll use topical coconut oil. I'll use, I, we have a little concoction where we have a topical vitamin B12 preparation. And there was actually a couple of phase three studies on this. It's really wild. I feel like there must've been some company pursuing this a few years ago and then they just disappeared. So we had it made, you know, we just followed the recipe from the paper and we have it made. It's like $20 for a big tub. Um, it's pretty safe. And it seems to give some relief. The idea is that topical, like apparently oral B12 has almost no effect on atopic dermatitis, but the topical B12 seems to block nitric oxide synthase and may be sort of a flare preventer. So modest, but these are the kinds of things I'll work in topically if they don't want to do a TCI while I'm doing something systemically. And for most of the patients, I can get them better, but I, I will confess very openly, I have some patients who are just miserable and I feel pretty, pretty powerless against. They're just kind of un- uncomfortable and suffering. That topical B12 question um, raised something that I sort of in my deep dive started to hear over and over again, which was potentially the role of nitric oxide and how it might be um, kind of causing a sort of persistent state of vasodilatation that worsens the condition and the topical B12 potentially therapeutic for that. And I was like spitballing in my head and I was like, could you like infuse methylene blue for these patients? And maybe that would potentially give them a break or something. But I love the approach of giving the skin the chance to heal with a different kind of immunomodulator. And I think that that's an important piece that the kind of lay community of topical steroid withdrawal patients is a little bit afraid of, but I think as physicians, we can help to explain to them that the skin that's chronically inflamed can't heal itself properly, but if we can get the inflammation under control and then remove the steroids from the equation and allow the skin to heal and then repair the barrier, we could potentially get you to a place where we can maintain your your skin health with normal bland emollients and without future immunosuppression, it will just be a little bit of a journey. And I think that's so much more palatable than this. I've been seven years spending eight hours in the, a day in the bathtub so that I can survive and not sleeping and having to take all kinds of pain medication because of how severe this is. I think that it's a much more palatable strategy. So if you have a patient who's had legitimate topical corticosteroid withdrawal syndrome and they get over it, 
Um, do you think it's safe to use steroids again on them? You know, I honestly think it, it could be. And I imagine there are some patients who truly just overused it either, you know, probably unwittingly, but overuse them and probably could use them safely. Most of the patients are kind of scarred psychologically from the whole thing. So I tend to try to avoid them when possible. But I still think, you know, it, it could potentially be an appropriate treatment again. And, and I have had some of those patients who we've gotten so much better, and then maybe something else comes up, like a contact dermatitis, and they say, okay, I'll, I will use a steroid. I'm miserable. Can I do it for just the weekend? And I think I have seen patients who can use them safely again and are not over-reliant on them. So I think that is true. I think it really can. I think just the key thing is just connecting with your patient to make that that sort of shared decision-making and therapeutic alliance of, are you okay with this? And we're going to watch you. Again, I always say, we're going to watch you like a hawk if we feel like, because to me, the, the, the way I can detect it, or at least what I suspect is the most sensitive sign, the thing I'm on the lookout for is that escalating usage pattern, you know, where somebody says, yeah, you know, last month I needed it two weeks out of the month, the triamcinolone or whatever. And then, you know, the month, you know, the month after that, I needed it almost every day. I only had a few days off and I, and I, can you give me something stronger? And I'm saying, okay, that's, that's the wrong direction. I want that damping pattern of disease where they say, oh my gosh, I haven't used a steroid in two months. I'm feeling great. I'm mostly just on my moisturizers. I use a little bit of the, the tacrolimus here and there for those trouble spots, but I'm great. The last big flare up was two months ago. I'm like, you are on the way out. This is what we want. But if they're escalating use, then I, then I will hit the brakes. And I think that's a time when we need to say, instead of going stronger, instead of going wet wraps, instead of increasing the frequency of application of steroids, maybe we need to think out of the box. Now it's time for phototherapy, a systemic immunosuppressant or a biologic agent for those patients. And I think if we do that a little earlier, my guess is we're going to probably avoid most of this. I'd like to make this a thing of the past or like a weird, you know, weird blip in the history of treating atopic dermatitis. Well, and we accept the concept of disease hardening with immunobolus disorders. So it stands to reason that there's a possibility that you could have hardening of conditions like atopic dermatitis and, of course, contact dermatitis. And if so, if the condition is just allowed to flare and remit and flare and remit and flare and remit without being adequately controlled, there's theoretically the possibility it does get harder to treat. You can add steroid potentially atrophy and vasodilatation to the equation. And I think that that could potentiate the problem. So I think that, you know, having a rational approach to de-escalating the inflammatory cascades are really smart. We also discussed uh, an article a few episodes ago about genital dysesthesia syndromes, and one of the inciting factors was thought to perhaps be kind of the same thing, steroid overuse. So maybe some of those presentations are also topical corticosteroid withdrawal syndrome. Wow, I think that's a great point. And maybe some of the lessons we learn, you know, we can share the lessons we learn from both of these conditions, because I wonder if there is an important overlap. Well, I don't want to take up too much of your time, Dr. Leo, but I thank you for coming on to discuss this important topic. So if I had to summarize my thoughts about it, I would say, well, I certainly believe that topical corticosteroid withdrawal syndrome is a thing, both because these papers are convincing and also because two of the eczema gurus I most respect yourself and Eric Simpson tell me that it's real. So, I mean, what do I know compared to you guys? <laughs> and it's another reason to be careful with our topical steroids and take people seriously. And like you say, there are options that are not steroids to treat their eczema and also get them better. Do you recommend any support organizations for the patients? 
I will put in a general plug for the National Eczema Association. I am a board member and a, a you know volunteer member in many ways and a, and a donor. And I love the NEA. They're really pushing patient support and patient advocacy, and they do have kind of a special interest in this. And then there's the ITSAN group, which is kind of the, the corticosteroid addiction network uh, group that also is really sort of the heart and soul of, of this, this syndrome and that people who are there really are working to support and hopefully connecting more with the NEA as well, because I think together we can do more. So I think those are great online resources. And I just want people to try to find someone who can reach out and help them. I just think suffering in silence is really, we shouldn't have to do that. Our whole job is to help alleviate pain and distress and misery and suffering. So it's, it's sad if we can't, can't try to help at least. Well said. Um, Peter, before we started recording, you told us that you have a podcast, though it doesn't sound like it's about dermatology. Still, this is a good opportunity to let people know about it. Well, thank you. Yes. If, if you're interested in something totally different, it's called McQuaid Arcade. And check it out. It's all about the 80s and beyond. We talk about movies, games, technology, all this kind of fun stuff. And we go down sort of in our childhood in the 80s of our favorite things. One of my favorite episodes to start with, if you're interested, would be a mo- an episode about the movie The Goonies. So oh, we yeah. talk all about it, the great characters, the music, everything. And it's just super fun. We have a lot of laughs during it. And they're, they're kind of short bite-sized episodes, if you're interested. You can hear it anywhere where you like to take your podcasts. I actually, I use the truffle shuffle to explain the um, uh, cold paniculitis that pubescent boys can get in the scrotum um, to remind (laughs) people because it's usually little boys that have that body habitus of the little guy that does the truffle shuffle and (laughs) my residents never forget it. You better not have forgotten it, Luke. (laughs) Of course not. Uh, And Peter, if our listeners want to learn more about you or your research or anything you're into, um, is there a way for them to find you? Yes, the best place to find me is on our Chicago Integrative Eczema Center, which is chicagoeczema.com. Well, thank you again so much for being here today, and hopefully we can talk to you again soon. Thank you, guys, and thank you for an amazing show. Yay! Pimp Bell salute. (laughs) well peter is no longer with us but perhaps he will listen as we discuss the rest of our articles we're going to discuss today and i would like to discuss one about aplasia cutis congenita so i looked up this article because uh, a couple months ago i was um, summoned to the nicu to evaluate a baby with aplasia cutis and while i thought i had had a pretty good handle on the subject i realized i might not know as much as i thought i should especially as a pediatric dermatologist that was kind of embarrassing so um, i found a nice review from 2018 from the journal of perinatology called A Practical Approach to the Evaluation and Treatment of an Infant with Aplasia Cutis Congenita. The authors include S.R. Humphrey and Beth Drolet. I'm pretty sure I'm pronouncing that right. And if not, I am embarrassed because she is a heavy hitter in the world of pediatric dermatology. So what do you do if you have a baby with Aplasia Cutis Congenita, also called ACC? Well, that's what this article will help you with. ACC was first described in the 1700s, and what it is is an absence of skin in an area that's present when the baby's born, right? It's congenita. It's usually a fairly smallish area. And the current thought is that there are several different pathomechanisms that can lead to aplasia cutis congenita. 
Um, the two that are most likely are that there's some kind of interruption of skin development, like when the keratinocytes are crawling along the surface, they don't quite make it all the way for one reason or another. And then another possible pathomechanism is the skin did form fine, but then it was destroyed. So for a vascular compromise, for example. So maybe it's those things. It's been reported as inherited. Both autosomal dominant and recessive forms have been described, but is usually spontaneous. There are a number of syndromes associated with ACC. And what do dermatologists, well, what do pediatric dermatologists love more than syndromes? Asking questions about syndromes. I mean, you know, <laughs> right. think about syndromes. <laughs> Asking residents about syndromes. Um, so I will get to those later. Um, but speaking of ringing the bell, there are some maternal drugs that have been associated with it. So if you're going to be taking board exams, the following has been associated with ACC if the mother takes it while she's pregnant. Methimazole, valproic acid, carbimazole, misoprostol, marijuana, and cocaine. I didn't so know remember... about the two illicit ones. What's that? I did not know about the two illicit ones. I only knew about the prescription kinds. Yeah, so cocaine, I often think of vascular compromise with that one. Marijuana, I don't know. I mean, there it is. <laughs> Other possible contributors include intrauterine trauma. So especially if somebody had like a, a procedure intrauterinely, don't do those as much anymore. Um, some infections like HSV or VZV, but usually it's not thought to be related to staph or to scalp electrodes, even though sometimes patients or their parents think it is. Um, aplasia cutis can also develop from compression on growing tissue, such as from not enough room in there. So if there is oligohydramnios, that's like not as much placental fluid. I guess it's not placental fluid. What is it? Uterine fluid? <laughs> Amniotic fluid. Amniotic fluid. That's what it's called. If you've got a bunch of babies in there and they're all crowding around or macrosomia, just a really big baby. Sometimes there's not enough room, I guess, for the skin to develop. Sometimes ACC has involvement of deeper structures such as muscle and bone. And sort of the concerning thing is that it has also been found overlying some embryological malformations, including meningomyeloceles, spinal dysraphism, gastroschisis, omphalocele, and craniosynostosis. So pediatric dermatologists, and I think most dermatologists, are pretty familiar with the fact that most cases of aplasia cutis occur on the scalp. And when it's on the scalp, it's kind of divided into two forms, the membranous and the non-membranous varieties. Membranous accounts for 60% of them. And it looks like it's got this sort of shiny, vaguely translucent kind of whitish membrane over the top of it. The membrane can have blood or fluid underneath and thus look bullous. And maybe the mechanism of membranous aplasia cutis is growth or stretching. If the skull is growing fast or the brain is growing fast, then the skin doesn't have a chance to get there or it's still wimpy and kind of gets stretched out. There's also this idea that it could be a form frust, a neural tube defect. I assume I'm pronouncing that right. That sounds right. Uh, a form frust is like an incomplete form or it started and didn't finish completely. So what to do about aplasia cutis? Well, there is a great table in here. Um, so especially for membranous ACC of the scalp, if it's midline vertex or if it's posterior to the vertex, they recommend you get an MRI, which is kind of always the question. If I get like a consult, should we do some imaging? And I don't like doing MRIs on babies because you have to sedate them. 
you could hypothetically do the whole feed and wrap thing, like where you starve them and then give them a ton of milk and then they conk out and you can wrap them up and then they don't move. But I'm told by anesthesiologists that that doesn't work all that well. It works sometimes, but if it doesn't work, you can't audible to a standard MRI because they have a belly full of milk, so you can't sedate them and then you're sort of out of luck. Um, anywho, I also looked at our pediatric dermatology textbook, which is called, um, well, it's by Eichenfield and colleagues. So we, of course, just call it Eichenfield. And they also recommend an MRI in that case to rule out a dermal sinus. Oh, you should also do an MRI for membranous aplasia cutis of the scalp if it's not in the midline. But if it does have the hair collar sign, so that's thickened surrounding hair, uh, if there's a pit or drainage or they say a suspected bone defect. So and I think that if you have a double hit um, in that area, so if you also have like a midline capillary malformation or something like that, the possibility of underlying malformation is higher. So like That's definitely hit. true for like spinal dysrhapism in general. I would assume it's true here as well. Also on the scalp, especially with like the hair collar sign, the lesion can overlie changes to the normal brain structure or the central nervous system that aren't always like directly related. It's just like there have been cases where the MRI shows a brain that looks funny and also happens to have ACC. Um, the differential diagnosis. So again, if you get someone to the NICU, you also want to think about things like an atretic cephalocele, heterotopic brain or glial tissue, Eek. sinus pericranii, which is like uh, this venous connection from you know veins that are supposed to be in the brain and now they're sticking out and of course you need additional imaging as well um, you also want to think about some infectious causes including bullus impetigo hsv so hsv and an neonate pretty bad yeah. usually it's multiple lesions and not present at the time of birth but of course if you have any suspicion you should probably just start acyclovir and do the swabs and stuff Trauma can maybe cause it as well, such as with a vacuum extractor, forceps, or fetal scalp monitor electrodes. They say here, not causing aplasia cutis specifically, but just causing trauma, because especially like a premature baby, their skin is really wimpy, and even the tiny amount of heat from an electrode can damage it. Um, how to treat it? Usually they just need wound care. So good old Vaseline, my favorite. Um, though if it's especially big, you could do surgery. This is, of course, usually not done by dermatologists. It's done by plastic surgeons and people like that. You might use flaps and tissue expansion. Um, you want to do imaging beforehand to make sure you know about bony defects and underlying connections. All right, Michelle, yes. do we have time to go through these syndromes for our listeners? I think it's very high yield, and so I would, yes. All right, so there's like AM10 of these or something. So Adams-Oliver syndrome um, is ACC usually of the scalp plus limb defects. It can be inherited in various ways. It could also be sporadic. One of the genes associated with it is BMP or bone morphogenic protein. Patients can also have abnormalities of the CNS, GI tract, and cardiovascular system. So if you suspect it because they had ACC of the scalp and you notice that they have four fingers on a hand or you talk to their family members and discover a family history of people with limb defects or something... You want to ultrasound the scalp lesion and then refer them to the other specialists. Again, CNS, GI, cardiovascular stuff. That's Adams Oliver. Dumbest way I remembered this was like because it's Oliver. So I thought about like, please, sir, can I have some more fingers? And it has also like more stuff that goes with it. So you have to, they have to see more doctors and stuff. So it's like a lot more things. But 
I love it. <laughs> and I'm sure as part of their workup, they would get a BMP. Which exactly. you can also think about as bone, morph- bone morphogenic protein. Um, people with trisomy 13, the eponym is Patau syndrome, can get scalp ACC. There's an extremely rare syndrome, but if it shows up on your board exam, you're welcome. It's called oculoectodermal syndrome. About 20 cases have been reported. It's ACC of the scalp plus ocular dermoid cysts, possibly associated with a KRAS gene. Uh, BART syndrome. You'll see that one in textbooks and stuff. That's aplasia cutis congenita plus any form of epidermolysis bullosa, basically. And oftentimes the aplasia cutis is like on the limbs. And you can think about this as patients with EB have really fragile skin. So if the baby's like rubbing their legs together in utero, they could just peel the skin away and then they don't have it when they're born. Yeah, this syndrome has like two different things usually behind it. And I've taken care of babies with both. Um, I've gotten consulted from our NICU for this exact presentation. Um, Two very different babies. One had junctional epidermolysis bullosa with pyloric atresia, and the other one had um, dystrophic epidermolysis bullosa, but both of them had no skin on the anterior shins. There's some thought about renaming it or not going by BART syndrome just I think it's not um, specific enough, but I like Bart syndrome because I, being a kind of a kid of the 80s, like to think about Bart Simpson wiping out on his skateboard and skinning up his shins. And that's how you end up with no skin on your legs with this. Yeah. Maybe Peter Leo has a podcast episode about that in his McQuaid Arcade. About the Simpsons. There's this uh, funny syndrome called microphthalmia with linear skin defects. So, of course, they have microphthalmia, small eyes. The skin defects in this case are on the face. They are small and stellate, and they might not be true ACC. They might just be more like atrophic or indented. Uh, it's caused by a microdeletion on the chromosome X, P22.3. So that means it shows up in girls. Um, fetus papyraceus. This one's interesting. So this is large, jagged ACC on the trunk that is caused by the death of the baby's twin that occurs at the end of the first trimester or the beginning of the second trimester. Uh, several different pathomechanisms have been proposed. You can read about them in the article. Um, by the way, those cases usually do quite well just with Vaseline and wound care. Amniotic band sequence. This one's just weird, and if you look up pictures on Google Images, you will be haunted for the rest of your life, but basically it's thought that the amniotic fluid forms into these like threads or bands that disrupts development, and it's horrific at times it can be very mild too and finally there's this condition called congenital volkman ischemic contracture which i don't think i had heard of before but baby basically the fetus the baby before it's born gets compartment syndrome in utero and we don't know why they get compartment syndrome maybe because something's bleeding or something Um, it's usually the upper extremity and it's features stellate aplasia cutis plus nerve palsy or paralysis in the affected limb cool there you go. A bunch of stuff on aplasia cutis. And there are some really good um, like parental support groups for kids that are born with aplasia cutis, especially when it involves the limbs, because that tends to be more problematic than the aplasia cutis on the scalp. And those can be really helpful for parents. They like share, this is the best place to get the gauze that you need to wrap up the baby's legs. And just having other parents that are going through it is good support for your, for your families that are affected by this. And even though a lot of those are pretty severe, like the most common way I see aplasia cutis is a baby comes into me when they're like eight months old and they were like, somebody told me I should come see you because they didn't have any skin here. And now it's just a scar. And I'm like, they're fine. So usually it's not a big deal. I like it. All right, Luke, are you ready to talk about something completely different? 
I am. All right. So we have a couple of articles, a little sweet, if you will, on articles about neutrophilic dermatosis variants that resemble necrotizing fasciitis. The first one is out of the JAMA. It's a brief report. The authors are Isabel M. Sanchez and Canada Shinkai. Um, they are from the University of California, San Francisco. And they are kind of, in a way, putting forward a very logical and reasonable um, argument to, in some ways, simplify the way we think about and categorize some of these conditions. So in dermatology, some people are lumpers and some people are splitters. And a lot of us love the, the minutiae and the details, and we like to split and we like to be really granular and specific. But I think that that gets in the way of some of our conditions being well understood by other physicians that take care of the same patients and can cause poor outcomes. And so I think one of the circumstances that can happen in are the neutrophilic dermatoses that resemble necrotizing fasciitis. So these authors have taken under a, undertaken a worthy goal to help kind of clarify, simplify, and improve the recognition and diagnoses of these conditions. So PG, um, pyodermagacrinosum, and necrotizing sweet syndrome, they are both diagnostically challenging neutrophilic dermatoses, and they can mimic the cutaneous and systemic features of necrotizing fasciitis, which as we know is considered a surgical emergency and usually is followed after that diagnosis with relatively quick debridement, which is a great idea if you have necrotizing fasciitis, but could be potentially catastrophic if you're dealing with a neutrophilic dermatosis. Right, because debridement makes it worse. It does. Hashtag pathergy. Um, so they have put forward the plea that improved characterization of these rare variants is needed because those improper diagnoses can lead to inappropriate or delayed treatment and there is potential for morbidity. They wanted to look at these different characteristics and try to help improve our diagnostic accuracy to accomplish this. They did a case series of patients with no um, necrotizing neutrophilic dermatoses at three academic hospitals, so UCSF. OHSU and University of Minnesota. Um, Another opportunity to shout out to my former OHSU peeps. So Jesse Keller and Alex Ortega are on this article and their faculty there. Hope you guys are doing well. Great job, everybody. So they did uh, data obtain obtained from medical records as well as Medline and Embase. And they looked at the different presentations and found that all patients had signs resembling necrotizing fasciitis and also had a final diagnosis of one of these neutrophilic dermatoses, either pyodermic gangrenosum with systemic features or necrotizing sweet syndromes. Um, they excluded patients who, you know, had any nebulous diagnosis or anything like that. So they ended up with 54 patients with these necrotizing neutrophilic dermatoses. 40 of those had pyoderma gangrenosum with systemic features, and 14 has necrotizing sweet syndrome. Uh, most of, well, a small majority of the patients were males, so 54% male, 46% female. Mean age was 51 with a standard deviation of 19. And the skin lesions were predominantly located on the lower extremity, about 35%, and the upper extremity, 24%. They had lesions that developed after a surgical procedure. 41% of the skin lesions followed surgery or skin trauma with 19%. And shock was reported in 26% of their patients, along with a leukemoid reaction in 28% of their patients. A leukemoid reaction and um, leukocytosis are just different levels of increased numbers of white blood cells in the in the circulating blood. So for a person to have a leukocytosis, it's over 11,000 per microliter. For a patient to have a leukemoid reaction, different sources will either say 50,000 or 30,000 as in this article. Um, leukemoid just means it kind of looks a little bit like leukemia, but it's not leukemia. It's actually a response to something else and it goes away with, tr with treatment of the underlying condition. Do you think leukemoid reaction would be a good nickname for me? That would be a great bowling name for you, actually. 
Luca Mood Reaction. I'm going to call you that as a nickname now. I think that's amazing. If I become uh, a DJ, maybe. Yes. Welcome to the stage, Luca Mood Reaction. Anyway, so sad face. Um, debridement was performed in 42 patients, 78% of their cohort, at least two debridements per patient on average. And sadly, also four amputations were performed, which is really unfortunate for something that shouldn't have necessarily required that. And yes, later the- our listeners cannot see the looks of pain on our face, but they are there. <laughs> later in the article, they actually point out that three additional amputations were prevented by consulting dermatology. So dermatologists saving lives and limbs by making accurate diagnoses, which I appreciated. They found that um, 91% of their patients got antibiotics, uh, and they also had 93 of them that eventually got systemic corticosteroids that responded. Other immunosuppressives were used in the remainder, so all patients improved with immunosuppression. They concluded here in this article that a complex spectrum of these clinical findings of pyoderma gangrenosum and sweet syndrome with these prominent systemic inflammation symptoms um, can use to divine this new subset of neutrophilic dermatoses. They want to call it necrotizing neutrophilic dermatosis and help us to recognize the difference between these variants and severe infections to help prevent unnecessary surgical procedures or prolonged disease morbidity associated with misdiagnosis and also to expedite appropriate medical management. So I, I didn't even know that necrotizing sweet syndrome was a thing, Michelle until I was on service with one of our residents, you know, covering the weekend. And that's what they told me the patient had. And I sort of scratched my head. Um, But the, these authors are basically purporting to combine what seemed to be sweet syndrome, but also sort of had pathogen and was necrotizing plus sort of necrotizing PG, which is like, pyodermic gangrenosum, plus they have systemic findings into this one category, which they call necrotizing neutrophilic dermatosis, which, I mean, it's almost embarrassing to say I didn't really appreciate that it existed before, like, I don't know, six months ago. Probably well, a failure of my the, residency um, program. Oh, you know, I mean, it's all my fault. Just kidding. But these unusual presentations, I think, because they're unusual, and especially because outside of our specialty, they're even less well known, can certainly lead to significant problems in management for these patients because they look very sick. They have severe systemic features, similar to what you'd have in a critically ill patient who had necrotizing fasciitis. These patients look like they have septic shock. They have a wound that looks infected. And it's, it can be difficult to make that diagnosis. Um, some of the things that they found that were able to distinguish between necrotizing fasciitis and one of these necrotizing neutrophilic dermatoses was the presence or absence of crepitus. So crepitus could be present with necrotizing fasciitis, but was not seen in cases of the necrotizing neutrophilic dermatosis. Um, other histologic features are challenging because uh, infectious condition and a biopsy of the necrotizing neutrophilic dermatoses can have overlapping features, including dense neutrophilic inflammation, edema, and leukocytoclasia. Of course, tissue culture could be very beneficial, as well as blood cultures, but those are not bulletproof either. So it's going to require, I think, a lot of clinical pathologic correlation, paying attention to patients' treatment response. Another thing they pointed out was the patients who had these necrotizing neutrophilic dermatoses who were initially diagnosed as having an infection didn't get better with antibiotics, which should always make us think about, do we have the right diagnosis and do we have the right treatment? And I think that that's something we need to kind of get into the practice of asking ourselves. I think and some should of we the, consult dermatology before should we consult removing this limb? Before we cut this person's leg off. Um, so I think another important and useful part of this article 
was to talk about some of the medications that were also potentially um, used when they thought this was a medication-induced problem. So medicines were triggers potentially in seven patients, including not surprising ones like GCSF in four cases. Um, illicit drug use was reported in one patient. It was meth, not surprising. Meth does all the things. I treat patients who have methriasis. It's bad psoriasis that flares with meth. I have patients that have what I call lupus, which is meth-induced lupus or meth-worsened lupus. And here, I guess we have methoderma gangrenosum. But um, some of the other drugs were bortezomib. That's a multiple myeloma drug, a proteasome inhibitor like we talked about last time. Um, and the podcast, I think episode 46, and azathioprine, medications that you would use in patients who had a lymphoproliferative disorder. Um, coincident com comorbidities included some patients with hematologic disorders, malignant neoplasms, um, solid organ malignant neoplasms, inflammatory bowel disease, connective tissue disease, endocrine disorder, pregnancy, or infectious diseases. All of those are things that we know can coexist on this spectrum of a neutrophilic dermatosis, so I don't think any of those are terribly surprising. Um, they did find that biopsy uh, was performed in the vast majority of their patients, 94%, and their histopathology was this sparse, diffuse, subcutaneous dermal inflammation with neutrophils and leukocytoclasis and edema that extended down to the fascia or the muscle. Um, again, it was sad that debridement was performed in 78% of those patients because, as we know, pathogy is a problem with these conditions and actually worsens the management of the disease. Um, we know that the dermatology consultation could help kind of clarify the clinical picture for these patients. They did also have some great clinical photographs. They have a photo of the gentleman who had meth-induced um, PG that led to, unfortunately, amputation of his right leg. They also note the challenge of managing these patients because, you know, the treatments that we would use to manage the neutrophilic dermatoses are diametrically opposed to the treatments we would typically use to treat infectious disease. And they sort of propose a middle ground, which I think is reasonable to combine corticosteroids with antimicrobial agents kind of carefully and thoughtfully with close observation of the patient, which in these patients where you have this concern may potentially be helpful. Another, I think, useful figure that they point out is that in diagnostic cases of necrotizing fasciitis, the tissue cultures are positive between 43 to 98% of the time. So not all the time. And the blood culture is positive 18 to 66% of the time. I looked into it to see if anything like procalcitonin could be potentially helpful, but unfortunately that tends to be elevated in the neutrophilic dermatoses as well. And so not a reliable thing, but they do put forward the cry to try to find a biomarker that can help us to accurately distinguish between these conditions. But right now, the best thing we have is our clinical correlation and our ability to monitor the patient over the course of their disease. Yeah. So I think the main takeaway is that these are sick people who look like they have neck fash, mm -hmm. but in fact, they have a neutrophilic dermatosis. So you have to treat them as if they have a neutrophilic dermatosis, which is usually like with a ton of steroids, and then they get better. You can't blame people for thinking they have neck fash. I looked into this. According yeah. to the CDC, there are about 10,000 cases of neck fash each year in the United States. And this review, which covered like the past 20 years, found 54 patients total reported. So like playing the odds, the odds are that your patient has necrotizing fasciitis. But yeah, we surely don't want to miss it, especially because of this, you know, saving people amputations and stuff. Well, and I think that the comorbidities are also things that can predispose patients to severe infections, you know, lymphoproliferative disease, inflammatory bowel disease, connective tissue disease, 
pregnancy, that would be a scary circumstance to try to decide what to do for a patient. There was a nice editorial that was also published in the JAMA by Dr. Jeffrey Callen from University of Louisville, kind of just going over the importance of these entities. And I think he does a beautiful job kind of discussing his own personal exposure to the neutrophilic dermatoses and how the understanding of the pathophysiology of these conditions has expanded over the Did past several years. Did you say he was from the University of Louisville? I, I did. Is that wrong? I said Louisville. Louis, Louisville. I think that's right. Yeah, I, I said Louisville. I didn't put an S on it. Oh, but um, take it back then. He does. But he I'm does watching put you. forward. Okay, yeah, keep an eye. You know, I, yeah, us Texans like to mispronounce things. But um, he did kind of point to the fact that you know we both need to expand our understanding of these conditions as well as potentially to help our colleagues recognize these conditions a little bit more um, quickly decomplicate our classification of the conditions. He speaks about the, you know, terms of like neutrophilic dermatosis of the dorsal hands. Um, it's a traditional neutrophilic dermatosis, but it's kind of specifically delineated because of where it's localized. You know, I think that having a little bit more of a dialogue with our colleagues that also treat these patients, I think is important. And I think that the entreaty that Dr. Callan puts forward that we need to have a unifying concept of these neutrophilic dermatoses that should also help us to educate our colleagues about the possibility of this condition, teach them about the concept of pathergy and the rapid response to corticosteroids. And then one of the fun things in his response here is that one of the first descriptions of the ulcerative form of sweet syndrome in, um, in PG was described by Brunsting et al., which is the same Brunsting of Brunsting Perry fame. And the second author on that paper was actually Geckerman of, of Geckerman treatment. So, I, so sometimes we do stand on the shoulders of giants for sure. Um, I think one other important thing to highlight from this grouping is the possibility of post-surgical um, sweet syndrome and PG, which can certainly have uh, activation following a surgical procedure. Of course, you would be concerned about infection in the post-surgical setting. So being aware of that variant, I think, is very important. And making sure that the clinical picture makes sense in the patient's response to therapy is congruent with your original diagnosis. And if not, reevaluating the patient and making sure you're taking all of the signs and symptoms into consideration. Super important for dermatologists to know about, especially if you're in an academic center, that you might run into one of these necrotizing neutrophilic dermatoses masquerading as neck bash. Um, are you ready to talk about something completely different? Yes. I want to talk about superficial morphia, mostly because I wasn't quite aware that there was such a thing, and also because CertLink, when I was trying to recertify successfully, I might add, um, recommended this article. So Woo! the title is Superficial Morphia, a Rare Condition and Report of Three Unique Cases. This is from JAD Case Reports. I think this is our first article from JAD Case Reports. And the authors include Kanthi awesome. Bomaretti and Swapna Reddy, if I'm pronouncing those correctly, from Albany Medical Center. So morphia um, comes in several subtypes. Uh, maybe this is bellworthy. Subtypes of morphia, plaque, linear, thank you, uh, generalized, pansclerotic, mixed, and superficial. So superficial morphia, pretty rare, was first described in 1999. I believe according to this article, there have been a total of like eight publications describing superficial morphia, so not too many. But this article presents three different cases of it. Um, and... What is special about superficial morphia? So usually people with this condition have bilateral atrophic plaques or patches in the intertriginous areas or the trunk 
and the histopath apparently is important. Um, you have thickened collagen in the superficial dermis, and you have elastic fibers. So you're a dermatopathologist, Michelle. Um, does thickened collagen mm-hmm. in the superficial dermis and elastic fibers sound like a unique thing? I think that there's kind of a if I'm not uh, if I'm not remembering it incorrectly, there's kind of a fragmentation of the elastic fibers in some of these conditions. But I, I have I think actually seen this several times. There's this weird hip girdle um, superficial sclerosis that is not as thick and bound down as what you might see in the trunk of a person who has severe systemic sclerosis or something like that. But the histology is usually not as smack you in the face, scleroderma-ish. It's just more um, dense collagen. And if you do stain for the elastic fibers, typically I think you would see that they're fragmented. They say the differential includes just sort of standard morphia, as well mm-hmm. as lichen sclerosis. And sometimes it, I feel like morphia and lichen sclerosis are kind of on a spectrum. And then the idiopathic atrophoderma of Pacini and Perini. Remember that one? I'm sure you do, but I could barely remember I do. Remember it's, it. it's a cliff drop one. That one say tends to be more... Um, so it's a cliff drop is like the the, the right. buzzword for it. Like, you know, you, your finger goes over the edge and goes, and it falls off the side of Niagara Falls. And we'll discuss um, so this more next time. Out. Get it? A cliffhanger. <laughs> kind of the same thing. Yeah, I, I, a cliffhanger. I like it. That's awesome. So uh, they say here that this uh, atrophoderma of Piscini and Perini commonly coexists with morphia and is believed to be maybe an abortive form or maybe a form frust in which sclerosis fails to form. <laughs> maybe. Um, anywho, so that's the things you might think of if you're thinking about superficial morphia. So there are three cases. There was a 28-year-old woman with what they call worsening stretch marks, or what she called worsening stretch marks, which were linear, light pink, atrophic, shiny patches in the bilateral axilla, medial upper arms, antecubital fossae, and medial thighs. So it was symmetric and intertriginous. Some areas had superficial ulceration. They have nice photographs of all of these patients, and hers looks like, I mean, it looks like dramatic strie. Like you would think she was really overusing topical steroids, or she had Cushing syndrome or something, but the rest of her wasn't Cushingoid. Um, they were kind of dramatic in appearance. Um, another of their patients was a 45-year-old man. It looks like, based on the photos, he was a kind of a darker phototype, four or five. And his um, lesions look quite different. They were hyperpigmented patches. They were on the anterior and posterior neck, the lower face and back. And looking at his photos, I wouldn't think about any kind of morphia, honestly. I looked more like carp, I thought. And then their third patient was a 35 <laughs> year old man who had hyperpigmented, shiny, atrophic patches in the inguinal folds, chest, and back, and then a hyperpigmented patch on the center back. And his photo looks a little bit like it's kind of midway between the other two. So I think one way reason this is a nice article is because it shows a spectrum of disease. Um, and why did they look different? I don't know. They speculate maybe because of the length of disease. Some of the patients hadn't been progressing for a while and the others were fairly new. Maybe the phototypes or other patient demographic features or other factors we just don't know. But what unites all of these apparently disparate cases was their histopath. Thanks, dermatopathologists. So in all cases, they had superficial dermosclerosis, a posicellular subepithelial sclerosis, and elastic fibers. 
They said that based on that, the differential diagnosis could include lichen sclerosis, but they thought these patients were more likely to have superficial morphia just based on kind of the clinical distribution. And all of the patients improved with clobetasol. So whether it's superficial morphia or lichen sclerosis, clobetasol seems like a good idea. I don't think I've ever seen this. I think that there's also this um, overlap. I've definitely, so I've seen a lot of cases really that are just like the dude with the one on the, the lower abdomen, um, this weird hip girdle, thin plaque sclerosis. And, you know, I don't know if something's like, if it's a trauma initiated thing, if it's some kind of other pathogen or kibnerization from the waistband, or if it might be like a chronic irritation from some kind of rubber allergen or something like that. But I have seen this presentation, like the lower abdomen on this gentleman several times. And there is this overlap entity where you have top level findings of LSNA, where you have thickened stratum corneum and atrophic epidermis and hyalinization of the superficial dermis, but then with some significant sclerosis beneath it. And I wonder if um, there's some spectrum here, but it's nice to be made aware of this condition. And I think another thing this article does nicely is it shows the condition in different skin types, which we do um, in dermatology have a need to show representation of inflammatory skin conditions and neoplasms as well in skin of different phototypes. So I think that that was a nicely presented article with good clinical and histologic photos. 100%. (laughs) Well, that's all we have time for today. So listeners, thanks for hanging out with us and with Peter Leo, who I'm sure you'll remember joined us at the beginning to discuss his article, Topical Corticosteroid Withdrawal, Steroid Addiction. Um, And we learned that it's a real thing, but there are things that can be done about it. People do not have to suffer for seven years. We learned about aplasia cutis and went to MRI and what else to do. We learned about necrotizing neutrophilic dermatoses. They are scary. They look like necrotizing fasciitis, but don't debride them or amputate them. They just need a bunch of steroids. And we learned about superficial morphia. Pretty rare, but you can identify it on histopath and treat it with clobetazole. Thanks to our institutions. Thanks to the University of Utah for supporting the podcast. And thanks to Texas Tech for lending us Michelle. And thanks, of course, to Peter Leo for joining us as well. If you want to find more episodes, and why wouldn't you? You can do so on Apple Podcasts or (laughs) wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find them on our website, dermospherepodcast.com, which not only has our entire archive, but also a bunch of fun extras like our award winners and some of my just all-time favorite articles listed on there. It's also a good way to get in touch with us. You can also find us on our social media accounts. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to Ryan Carlisle, who keeps those moving along. We'll see you guys in two weeks. Woohoo!